Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I just praise you for your word. I praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and you have protected that word through the ages so that we can learn about you through it. Lord, I pray this morning that you will uh, give me the words to speak to, uh, to give your message to this congregation. Lord, I pray this morning that we can all learn from you, that we might be able to leave from here and be a more mature disciple and to go and make disciples. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 9, and our sermon series is uh, Jesus' Mission Continues. We're going through the whole book of Acts. Uh, we'll take a break at some point, but you know, right now we're still trucking through. Um, and this is called Jesus' Mission Continues, and we are looking at disciple-making in the early church to try to figure out what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of uh, worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, as I said, we're in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to go through verses 19 through 30. Well, the second half of 19 through verse 30. And this is Saul in Damascus. Um, and this passage shows us three uh, effects of the gospel. First is that the gospel changes people. Second is that the gospel grows people. And thirdly, it is that the gospel offends people. I'm going to say that again. The gospel changes people, the gospel grows people, and the gospel offends people. So a little bit of review uh, two weeks ago, we were reading about Saul as he was going from Jerusalem up to Damascus. He had, he had gotten letters from the high priest where he could go to Damascus to arrest the believers, those who followed the way. And he would go and he would arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem so they could be tried and killed. But on his way to Damascus, he was interrupted. And he was interrupted by Jesus. And Jesus called to him. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Saul said, Sorry, who are you, Lord? Saul said. And Jesus responded, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So last week, we got to read what happened right after that, where Saul is in the city of Damascus, waiting to hear from Jesus. And Jesus calls a disciple named Ananias. And he tells Ananias to go and lay his hands on Saul and pray for him that he might receive the Holy Spirit. And that happened, and it said that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. We're going to continue in this same story, looking in Saul, or looking at Saul. Um, and so we'll start with verses 19, or the end of 19 through 20. Well, actually, before we read that, let me uh, tell a little bit. I notice, or you may notice that I split verse 19 um, between last week and this week, kind of halfway in the middle. Um, we, we do believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that the Word of God has been protected by God through history, that we can still know about God through His Word. Um, but we recognize that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are divisions that were put in by man. They're not bad. They're there to help us to study. They're there to help us to make sure we're all in the same place as we're reading together. And they're, they're there to help with different divisions of the text. But they're not in there from God. There was a monk hundreds of years ago who put the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in there. And so as we're going through, you might, you might recognize that, well, that's a, an odd place for that verse to, to split. Or you might think, well, if I was putting those verse numbers in, I'd have put it somewhere else. And that's kind of what happened this time, where we split 19 in half. Um, so we did the first half of 19 at the end of last week's sermon. We're doing the second half of verse 19 at the beginning of this week's sermon. So we'll pick up right there. Um, and it says, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began, began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. 
What jumps out to us there is that it says immediately. This shows the suddenness and genuineness of Saul's conversion. Immediately. Notice the gospel changes people. And it says immediately. Saul had come face to face with the creator of the universe and believed in his sacrifice. He didn't waste any time spreading that gospel. Paul had heard the good news and he wanted to share it with others. But the question that comes up a lot of times is, why is this good news? We read about the God of the universe who came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, and died on a cross. And then, three days later, he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. But why is this good news? What does this have to do with us? Why is it good news for us? Well, because we all live in a state of brokenness. The world around us is in a state of brokenness. And we recognize that, and we long for uh, a perfect society. We long for a perfect world. That's because we were not created to live in brokenness. In the beginning, God created everything. And it was according to his design that we would live in perfect relationship with him and perfect relationship with other humans and the perfect relationship with the rest of uh, creation. But we're not there anymore. How did we get to the state of brokenness? It's because of sin. And sin is any time that we're not following God's will in our life. When we take and we say, God, you know what? That sounds like a good plan, but I have a better plan. Or God tells us something that he wants us to do, and we don't do it. Or he tells us not to do something, and we do it anyway. Or if we have sinful thoughts. Sin is where we take and we say, God, we know, we know you're important. We know, you know we love you, but right now I'm a little more important. We put ourselves above God, and that's sin. That's the heart of sin. And that sin leads to brokenness. And unfortunately... No matter how hard we try, or how hard we work, or how much money we make, we cannot earn our way out of brokenness. We cannot fix this brokenness on our own. The good news is that Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. And he died the death that we deserve. We have offended a holy God, and because of that, we deserve death. We deserve eternal hell. But Jesus came, and he paid that price for us. And when he was resurrected on the third day, it was in victory over sin and death. And when we believe in that sacrifice and repent from our sinful lifestyle, we can then recover and pursue God's design in our life. That's why it's the good news, because we can recover and pursue God's design in our life. It's the good news because the sin debt that we owe has been paid. The punishment that we deserve, the punishment of death and hell that we deserve, Jesus took it for us. And he gives us his righteousness. That's why it's the good news. That's why Saul couldn't keep it in. That's why it says immediately Saul went and started proclaiming Jesus. Immediately he said, he is the son of God. And it says he was proclaiming Jesus. We see Saul has been radically transformed. This first point is that the gospel changes people. Saul is no longer persecuting Jesus or the church. We saw at the end of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen was being killed. He was being martyred, and Saul stood by in approval. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, it said that Saul was ravaging the church, so much so that it caused the believers there in Jerusalem to scatter. They ran away from him. Saul was ravaging the church. And then just a few verses ago, at the beginning of this chapter, we read where Saul is going to Damascus, 
to continue to ravage the church, to continue to persecute Christians, to arrest them, to take them back to Jerusalem so they could be killed. You see, here, Saul has been completely changed. He has been changed by the gospel. He recognizes now that Jesus is what he claimed he was, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the answer to our brokenness. And because of that, he is now proclaiming Jesus. See, this begins to fulfill Jesus' promise about how he will use Saul. In verse 15, Jesus told Ananias that Saul would be his chosen instrument to take the gospel to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. An important point here is that new believers, they often want to share their faith. These new believers, they have a fresh fire in them, and they want to spread that faith. And we should encourage them to do so. We want to encourage new believers to share their faith. Um, one of my seminary professors, Alvin Reed, um, in my evangelism class, he said, when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and if they accept Jesus as their Savior, when they are saved, you should have them make two phone calls right away. The first phone call would be, will, the first phone call will be to somebody who would like to hear that they were saved. This could be, you know, if you're witnessing to a young man and he has been saved. And that first phone call could be to the grandmother who's been praying over his soul for years, praying that he would be saved. Or maybe it's to a friend who has been witnessing to them for years, trying to share the gospel with them. That first phone call will be to somebody who would love to hear that they have accepted the gospel. And the second phone call will be to somebody who needs to hear the gospel. So as a fresh believer, we want to encourage new believers to share their faith. But look where Saul went. It says he was in the synagogues. And see, Saul went back to his former hangouts to spread the gospel. He went back to where he was comfortable to spread the gospel. See, we tend to hang out with those people who are like us, who are similar to us. Therefore, as Christians, unfortunately, that means sometimes we end up with a lot of Christian friends and maybe not any lost friends because we want to hang out with people who are similar to us. We have friendships with people who are similar to us. So we may not have a whole lot of lost friends to share the gospel with. But we should strive to have lost friends. And that is part of our disciple-making strategy that we just finished going through on, on, in Sunday school. But usually, when you ask a Christian if they've been a, a Christian for more than just a few years, the, their list of lost friends is very short. But a new Christian will likely have a lot of lost friends. They'll probably have more relationships with lost people than they do with Christians. And so they can go back to these people that they've been hanging out with. They can go back to these people they already have relationships with and share the gospel with them. And they can show how the gospel affects their life. And they can share how the gospel can affect the other people's life. As a church, we want to reach lost people. As a church, we want to reach lost people. The Great Commission says to go and make disciples. We realize that uh, making disciples it's not just a one-time thing where somebody becomes a disciple. Yes, that is part of it, but we also grow as disciples. But as a church, we want to reach lost people. And in an effort to do that, when we reach new lost people, we see them saved, we want to encourage them to take the gospel to their lost friends. This will be a great way for us as a church to see kingdom growth in our town. We don't want to reach lost people so that our church can grow. That would be nice. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to reach lost people to build God's kingdom for the glory of God. 
Yes, we would like to see more people here because we know that if they are here, they're learning about Jesus. We know that if they're here, they're learning the Bible. But there are many, many other good churches in this area where they can do the same thing. Yes, we would like for them to be here, but that's, that's not why we reach lost people. Not to get more people at Victory Baptist Church on Sunday morning. We reach lost people so that we can steal those souls back from hell and they will be with God in heaven for eternity. We want to reach lost people to build God's kingdom here now in our town for his glory. But see, when we go out and we reach lost people and then we encourage new Christians to reach their lost friends, we'll probably end up with a lot of new Christians here in our building. That's a good thing. That also puts a lot of responsibility on us. As I said, disciple making is not just going out and getting people saved. Disciple making is helping others to become more mature as disciples. Helping, uh, letting them help us to become more mature as disciples. So as we are reaching new people for the kingdom of God, that puts a lot of responsibility on us for disciple making. I know I keep referring back to it, but we just finished our disciple making strategy in Sunday school. And when we finished it this morning, I said, now this, just because we're finished talking about it in Sunday school, it doesn't mean we are done with it. Because this is something that we will continue to do as a church. This is something that we need to continue to do as individuals. We apply it to our lives all the time so that we can make disciples, so that we can build God's kingdom for his glory. What we don't want to do when we get these new Christians, what we don't want to do is lock them in a classroom and fill their head full of knowledge. We do want to train them, but we want to do so in the context of their life, not locked in a classroom. We do want to train them, and there is a point and a time for classroom training. But if we only do classroom training, then we will leave them unable and unwilling to share their faith. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't still use them, because he definitely can. But as a church, we're almost standing in the way at that point. We want to get them out and sharing the gospel and helping them share the gospel. Let's see what happens next. In verse 21, it says, All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. See, it says they were astounded because he kept growing. They were astounded because the gospel grows people. Saul's transformation was evident. He was the persecutor of the church, a Hebrew among Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. See, when it came to being a Jew, there was nobody who did it better than Saul. And he was totally in, all, like all sold out, zealous for Judaism and willing to arrest anyone who claimed anything different. But now he's taking all that training and all that zeal and applying it to Christ and his message and his body. And see, this points back to our three circles image that I showed earlier, where we are um, repenting. See, over here it talks about repent and believe. To repent means to turn away or to turn towards. Because if you are turning away from something, you're turning towards something else. See, Saul's life was totally sold out for Judaism and how he understood the Old Testament. Saul's life 
was totally sold out to that. And this is the direction of his life. But when he met Jesus, his whole life repented and came to worshiping Jesus and spreading the message of Jesus. Saul was about persecuting the church. And now he is about growing the church and building God's kingdom. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Old Testament and the New Testament are opposite. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I am saying that Saul's misunderstanding of the Old Testament is opposite of the truth of the gospel. Because in reality, the Old Testament points to the New Testament. A true understanding of the Old Testament helps us to understand the New Testament more. Sorry, I lost my spot in my notes. So Saul had repented. Anytime we see a new Christian, anytime we see a new Christian, there should be repentance in their life, turning away from sin towards Jesus. But that's not just a one-time decision. That's something that we do every day. Because when we are saved, we're not, boom, automatically made perfect. It says we are justified. That means that Jesus gives us his righteousness. And so we are, we are innocent at that point before a holy God. We are justified, but we still need to be sanctified. And that happens through continual repentance, continual turning away from our sin and toward Jesus every day, laying down our sins at the cross and pursuing holiness. It says that Saul grew stronger. Saul was growing in his um, faith and knowledge. Going back to our disciple-making strategy, this points to our picture of spiritual growth or our stages of spiritual growth. You know, I've showed you this quite a few times before in that when we are lost, the Bible equates that with being dead. We are spiritually dead. A lost person is spiritually dead. And then when they are saved, you know, the Bible uses the language of being born again. And so we are spiritual infants. And that's okay. It's okay for a new Christian to be an infant. And then we grow. We become a child. As we learn more about the Bible, as we learn more about making disciples, we grow. We become a young adult. And then when we start to make disciples, then we are a spiritual parent. And then when our, the disciples that we have made start making disciples, then we are a spiritual grandparent. Our goal is to be making disciples for the glory of God. Our vision is worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we are making disciples who are making disciples, we're fulfilling our vision. But when we make a disciple and there's a new Christian, they're a spiritual infant. And it's okay to be a spiritual infant as a new Christian. But it's not okay to stay there. If you've been a Christian for more than a year or so and you're still at that spiritual infant stage, then we need to get you into some disciple-making relationships, somebody to hold you accountable to help you to grow. If, as a Christian, if you see other believers who are still spiritual infants, that's a disciple-making relationship that you can step in and help them to grow into spiritual maturity. In Luke 9.23, um, it says, Then he said to them all, this is Jesus, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The verb here used for follow after is literally translated to come after. And this signifies a passionate pursuit. Pointing back to the three circles um, image, when we are recovering and pursuing God's design, this is similar to that. It's a passionate pursuit of God's design in our life. It's a passionate pursuit 
of Jesus in our life. In the book, Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman, he compares it to dating someone. When you're in a fresh dating relationship, you want to know everything you can about that person. You pursue them. You try to learn all that you can. And their desires become more important than your desires. You do everything you can to satisfy them. And that's the same way that we should look at our relationship with Jesus. We're pursuing after him. We want to learn everything we can about him. And his will in our life becomes more important than our will in our life. But see, in that context, it makes no sense for a Christian to stay as an infant or even as a child. Because if we are passionately pursuing Jesus in our life, we will grow as a disciple. As we are passionately pursuing Jesus in our life, we're going to be talking about him to others. And when they see how the gospel affects our life, then they're going to want some of that too. We share the gospel with them. When they see how the gospel affects our life, and we can share with them how the gospel affects their life. You see, the good thing about it is that we don't have to try to grow our faith on our own. We have a body of believers to help us, to teach us, to train us, and to hold us accountable. This is why it's so important for us to be members in a local body of believers. This is why it's important for us to have disciple-making relationships with other believers to help us, to train us, to teach us, and to hold us accountable. But what was it that Saul was saying? Saul was telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, for Saul to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, this points again to his total transformation. Under the Jewish understanding, claiming that Jesus is the Messiah would be blasphemy. Which is why Saul was okay with killing Christians. Because under Old Testament law, anybody guilty of blasphemy would have been killed. And so, for Saul to claim that Jesus is the Messiah, something had to have totally changed in his understanding. He is totally transformed. See, he's no longer persecuting Christ or killing Christians, but he is trying to convince other Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So we look at that word, the Messiah. And this is a word that we talk about in church quite a bit. It's what I, I like to call a, a Christianese word, Messiah. We talk about it in church. I'm not sure how many Christians actually know what it means, but then when we get outside of the church, we talk about Messiah. I'm not really sure hardly anybody outside the church really knows what that word means. But the Messiah in the Old Testament, the Messiah was the man who was handpicked by God to save the Israelites and the entire world and reinstate the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom under the line of David. And see, Jews were looking for the Messiah to come and to kick out the Romans because um, Israel was under, uh, under rule of the Roman Empire. So the Jews were looking for someone to come and to kick out the Romans and to reinstate the kingdom of Israel right then and right there. But Jesus came to save the world. Not by defeating the Romans, but by sacrificing his life on the cross and being resurrected on the third day, defeating sin and death. Through faith in that sacrifice is how Jesus saves us from our sin. And it's how he reconciles our relationship with God that we broke through our sins. Those who believed in him would be citizens of the kingdom, and he would reign in their hearts. However, extending that further, in the end, Jesus will come and rule over a new heaven and a new earth and defeat his enemies for all eternity. So yes, 
the Jews kind of had a partial understanding of the Messiah, but it was unclear. And so when Jesus came as the Messiah to save the world, not from Roman rule, but to save the world to slave, from slavery to their sin, they missed it. They didn't see it. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They missed him because they misunderstood who he was and what he was coming to do. Now, finally, in this last section, this verses 23 to 24, it says, After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Now here it says, after many days had passed. Now, we're unsure about this. We're unsure about how long it is. But this may allude to the time where Paul had gone to um, Arabia and returned again to Damascus before going to Jerusalem. We read about this in Galatians 1, 15 to 18. Sorry, that should say Galatians 1, not Luke 9. Um, in Galatians 1, 15 to 18, it says, But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had come as apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. So Cephas here, this was um, like Saul's nickname for Peter. He calls him Cephas quite a bit. But so this may be what the, um, the after many days in Acts, that might, that might be what Luke is talking about. Um, this would be many days. You know, he went to Arabia for a little while. He came back, and then three years later. That would be many days later. But it says that after many days, the Jews conspired to kill him. See, why would they want to kill him? Well, it's for two reasons. First, it's the same reason that Saul was persecuting the church to begin with. Saul was teaching, or what Saul was teaching, according to them, was blasphemy. It's the same reason that Jews wanted to kill Jesus in the Gospels. For any man to claim to be God or that another man is God is blasphemy. And as Christians, we should stand against blasphemy. But when somebody claims that God is not God is also blasphemy. When somebody says that Jesus is not God, that is blasphemy because Jesus is God. So this changes our whole understanding of what, or from what the Jews understood to be blasphemy. Under a Jewish understanding, to claim that Jesus is God is blasphemy. But under a, under a Christian understanding, to claim that Jesus is not God is blasphemy. This is why they wanted to kill him. Um, second, they wanted to kill Saul because they were offended by the gospel. And see, the, the gospel offends us because it points out our deficiencies. It points out our complete and total inability to fix our brokenness. It points out our complete and total inability to please God and to keep the law. Every other religion teaches that we can all fix our problems on our own or appease God on our own in some way. That's what every, every other religion boils down to. But Christianity boils down to that you can't do it. You are unable to please God on your own. You are unable to keep the law. You're unable to fix this brokenness on your own. Again, so why do we call it the good news? It's because even though we can't do it on our own, God came and did it for us. God came and gives us his righteousness. 
God came and paid the price for our sins and frees us from that slavery. They were offended because he was teaching that their religion would lead them to hell and that they could, uh, they could not see past their Judaism to see the answer. And the answer is the gospel. So two lessons we learn from this. First, is that not everyone that we share the gospel with will accept it. Definitely not, <laughs> definitely not on the first share. As we build relationship with people and we continue to show how the gospel is real in our lives and share it with them, more will come to faith, but not all. Unfortunately, not everyone we share the gospel with will come to faith. Secondly, second thing we can learn from this is that if we are not seeing people offended by the gospel, then we're not sharing our faith enough. You see, it's never our goal to offend people. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to offend people through the gospel. We want, to, we want people to accept the gospel for their own life. We want people to believe in Jesus and to have a relationship with him. We want people to love Jesus. Our goal is not to offend them. But unfortunately, if somebody cannot see past their own deficiencies, then the gospel will offend them. We don't want people to be offended. We want them to have their relationship with God reconciled. But unfortunately, as we are carrying out the Great Commission, people will be offended. So what application points do we have from this? Going back to our definition of a disciple, looking at knowing, being, and doing, what lessons can we learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ? First, to know the gospel well enough to share it. Saul, even though he was a new Christian, he understood the gospel well enough to be able to impress or at least amaze the Jews who were there. Um, two ways you can do this. Both of them are very powerful and both of them have their place. First, to have a, uh, I'm sorry, to practice your testimony. Talk about when you were saved. Practice your testimony. But don't just talk about when you were saved. Talk about how the gospel continues to affect your life. Talk about how the gospel continues to bring you closer to Jesus. Talk about how you still need to lay down your life and realize the power of the gospel in your life. Secondly, I would say to practice some tool to share your faith. I use the three circles. I've referred to it a few times this morning. You saw a picture of it a couple times. I like the three circles because it's easy. It's easy to memorize. You can jump in that conversation anywhere. Um, but there are other tools out there, some that are also very easy. Um, the story is another good one. Um, there's faith or evangelism explosion. Um, there's a whole lot of different um, faith or gospel sharing tools out there. Have one, practice it, make it your own. Know it well enough that you can actually use it. The second application point is under being, and that is to be changed through the gospel. See, Saul's life experienced a total repentance. He turned from persecuting Christians in the church to making disciples of Jesus. So we repent from our sins and surrender to Jesus for salvation. And then Saul continued to grow through the gospel. So continue to surrender to the gospel for spiritual maturity. And finally, our final application point under doing, this is to share the gospel. Carry on the Great Commission. When Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, to obey, or sorry, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have uh, taught you. So we share the gospel. Share with your testimony and share 
um, how the gospel can affect their life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. But mostly, Lord, I thank you that you sent your son to pay the price that we deserve, to pay our penalty, to take our punishment. Lord, we praise you and we worship you. Lord, I pray that this morning that we can all surrender to your gospel, that we can all surrender to you more and more every day. Father, I pray that through this message that you've given me, that this church has heard this morning, Lord, I pray that we can grow closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We've come to our, um, our time of um, response. You can respond where you're seated and pray there. You can come up to the cross and pray. You can come pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.